But our main portion of prayer will come from the words of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in a sermon that he preached on the same text that we will hear tonight in 1957. And I believe that as we grapple with what it means to love our enemies, Dr. King is one who teaches us about the best of anyone up there with Jesus, what that looks like. And so uh, I'll be using some of his words to guide our prayer together tonight as we prepare to hear Jesus's words. So would you pray with me? Father, first we would like to bring before you our friend Ryan and Charlie and Cherie, his wife Jessica, their family. As we in this room and in our congregation eagerly await for healing, pray for healing, seek out healing that we need and that is that which is unexpected. We pray that you would bring healing upon his life in the same way that we heard you bring healing upon Andrew's life just a minute ago. We pray that you would surround him with your care and that he would, um, that he too would have a story full of grace full of healing, full of your power. And in a very different sort of way, we ask for healing of ourselves. We ask that you would bring healing to the places in us that find it so easy to hate, that find it so easy to fight. The places in us, Lord, would you heal that, that make it easy for us to treat another human being as not a human being, that justify behaviors against them. And as Dr. King invites us, we ask that you would begin this healing work by helping us to see our own selves clearly. Help us to see the full truth and help us to see our full truth in the light of your grace and your love that we may receive your forgiveness and your compassion that brings humility in us, that brings gratitude in us, that enables us to give Forgiveness and compassion all the easier to others. And secondly, Lord, we follow Dr. King's example in praying not just in ourselves, but praying that you would help us to see those who would be called our enemies as you see them. Help us to see them with your love, with your grace. Help us to recognize the God spark in each soul, the story of life and hope and dreams. And help us to love them, whoever they may be, even if it is very difficult to like them. 
And finally, Lord, we ask not just for us as individuals in this room, but we ask for a nation and, in fact, a world that seems obsessed with enmity. We pray that you would bring freedom to your people. We pray that you would teach us to love well. We pray that you would bring an end to the constant suffering that war and enemy always brings. Help us, holy God, to indeed, as we've sung already today, help us to see the face of brother and sister when we see an enemy. This can only happen through your spirit. And so we declare our dependence on you, O Holy One. We ask that you would share with us the things that only you have so that we can become like you. And we ask this in the name and the spirit of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. My name is Chris, and I get to be one of the pastors here. If you do not have a Bible, we have a Bible to give to you. It's our gift to you, so just raise your hand. We have Bibles in English and in Spanish. If you're practicing your English or your Spanish, we're right here, Greg. Thank you. You can just borrow this, or you can have it. Greg Judah needs one right over here. That would be great. And I want to invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 5, starting with verse 38. Today is an important day. It's Groundhog Day, everyone. But it's also an important day because on the first Sunday of every month, we have kids with us. And so if you hear a baby cry, if you hear a child speak, just imagine that's the Holy Spirit. That is God's Spirit talking to you. God cannot speak through the voice of a kid, then we're, the rest of us are doomed, is what I believe. And so it is important for you to know that uh, some of God's best are among us. They also tell me that it's uh, tonight uh, is an event that happens. Uh, I guess people will be gathering to watch a series of short films, 30-second uh, short films with football game in the middle. And uh, I bring that up because everybody says it's super. Uh, you will be wowed tonight, they say. It will be a spectacle to behold. Like gladiators and gods, people will meet on a field of battle. And yet, that, uh, that story that has so much promise is actually quite empty. And to get together, we gather around a text that holds a different kind of promise that we can actually say is quite extraordinary and is quite super. So I want to invite you to stand as we read the text from Matthew chapter 5 and hear the word of the Lord. You have heard the law say you have heard the law that says the punishment must match the injury, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say do not resist an evil person if someone slaps you on the right cheek Offer the other cheek also. If you are sued in court and your shirt is taken from you, give your coat too. One translation says, if your coat is taken, give your cloak as well. If the soldier demands that you carry his gear for a mile, carry it two miles. Give to those who ask and don't turn away from those who want to borrow. 
You have heard the law that says, love your enemy, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. And that way you will be acting as true children of your Father in heaven. For he gives the sunlight to both the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust alike. If you love only those who love you, what reward is there for that? Even corrupt tax collectors do that much. If you are kind only to your friends, how are you different from anyone else? Even pagans do that. But you are to be perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. This is the word of God for the people of God. And we say together, thanks be to God. You may be seated. So when I was in seminary, I had a professor that was also at the same time a pastor, and he told a story about a woman in his church. She was uh, the lady that, that took on the look of a quintessential saint. She, she was the woman that had the long gray hair tied up in a really, really taut knot, tight knot on the top of her head. She was the kind that was always dressed conservatively, spoke with this little mousy but kindly voice, and she volunteered in children's church. She never, ever missed a Sunday. She never missed a Wednesday night prayer service. Anytime the church was open, she was there. She had her own key. So anytime the church was closed, she was there as well. Every year she won the perfect attendance award for Sunday school and she always spoke in religious language. When she talked to people, she would say, well, bless your heart or I'm praying for you or God loves you and so do I. For 70 years, she had been a staple at this church. She even had a saintly name. I remember him telling it to me. It was Betty. Doesn't that sound like a church lady's name? But he said the whole thing, the whole act was just a facade. He said uh, it was a cover-up for for the real Christian, or actually it was the anti-Christian activity that she participated in all the time. He said she wrote the most awful letters. She was critical, mean, vindictive, manipulative, passive-aggressive. She started rumors. She would hold secret meetings. And she did all of this, everything in her power, just to try to run that pastor out. He asked the question, and I ask it to us today, how do we live the Jesus way inside situations where bullies and jerks make our life really, really hard? I remember my professor saying, I, I, I tried. I tried my best. I worked to see the very best in her, even though it was a sham. Then at times I would tell myself that that she just must not be well. On other occasions I would think things were getting better, but then I'd get hit out of nowhere by an accusation, or I'd have to clean up the spill of of a rumor that she started. He said for years he considered how to handle it. He thought and prayed about it. And he said, I tried to consider my options. He thought to himself, the best offense is a good defense. I I, I think I should make a public announcement to tell people how she really is. Then he thought, well, maybe that's not there. Maybe what I need to do is I just need to ask her to leave. But then he asked the question, how would it look to to a congregation, would they be able to hold my trust if I got rid of a saint? He thought, what do I do? 
And then he said, I decided to do what Jesus does in the Sermon on the Mount. I acknowledged what was right in front of me. I couldn't ignore it anymore. I named her for what she was. And he said out loud, Betty is my enemy. If you take a look at the text, this is exactly what Jesus does. He encourages us to name our enemies. And I don't know about you, but that is actually so freeing for me. Somehow, I, I, I got the message. I always felt that the, that the unthink, uh, unchristian thing to do was to not acknowledge, uh, excuse me, that the Christian thing to do was to not acknowledge my enemy. The Christian way was to be a sissy for Jesus or to walk in humiliation. And in my growing up years, I, I really struggled with matters of faith. And one of the reasons was because of, the, because of that. One of the reasons that I struggled also was because I always thought that the invitation into the Jesus way was to lose my personhood. An invitation into the Jesus way was to lose my identity, my own security, and my sense of self. I thought to myself, turning the cheek is the way of the weak. Giving a cloak is the way of the wimpy. Walking an extra mile is the way of the humiliated. But instead, naming what a person is, according to Jesus, is actually the first step towards empowerment. Betty is my enemy. John is my enemy. Stacy is my enemy. Jesus empowers us to name our enemy. In Luke, the rich young ruler asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? But in Matthew, Jesus actually invites us to ask, who is my enemy? And an enemy is simply this, a person who would hurt you if they could. An enemy is a person who would take every opportunity to defame you, slander you, rob you, or take from you. An enemy is a person who looks to destroy who you are. Maybe it be physically, emotionally, spiritually. Enemies bring brokenness. They bring hurt. And, and worst of all, enemies bring shame. And, and, and the shame of an enemy, it, it, the shame that an enemy delivers just wrecks your person. It convinces you that you are actually beneath them and, and then your humanity is stolen. And Jesus seems to indicate that naming your enemy is the first thing and the first important thing that we can do. In naming your enemy, you're, you're given the opportunity to see things for what they really are. To see your enemy for what he is or what she is. And then that gives us the ability to see ourselves for who we are. And it gives us the ability to see ourselves as Jesus sees us. God's beloved. One who is fully human. One who is not to be treated how our enemy treats us. You know, for years and years and years, um, how God's people dealt with their enemy was the topic of the scripture. It was the topic of faith conversations. If you read through the Old Testament, it's on page after page after page. The Torah talks about how you deal with your enemies. The prophets, the Psalms, and the Proverbs, they all wrestle with how do we deal with our enemy? How do we deal with our enemy? And for years, the people of God leaned heavily on the teaching of Moses. 
His law was found in Exodus chapter 21, Leviticus chapter 24, Deuteronomy chapter 19. And all of them said, an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth. In other words, you take my eye and I'm going to take yours. You kick me in the tooth, I'm going to do the same. You chop off my foot, good luck in when I race you in the one-legged race, Stumpy. Th- that's how it worked. And this is what we've all understood justice to be. It came from Moses' law. Moses' law was one that tried to deal with an enemy that would, in, in a way that would curb violence. Just, it was, it was violence enough, and then it, it didn't let violence go too far after that. Back in the day, and maybe even still now, violence isn't this thing that stands on a linear track. It doesn't stay on a line. What I mean by that is violence is actually circular. Violence goes on and on without an end. Gandhi rightly observed, an eye for an eye makes the whole world blind. And I think... That may be why Gandhi admired Jesus of Nazareth and his teaching so much. Did you know Gandhi admired Jesus? He did. It's because Jesus isn't replacing the old law, but rather Jesus has some things to say about that law, and he's fulfilling it. He's, he's taken the law that Moses wrote down so long ago when the people always were having conversations about, and he fills in the cracks, and he shows us this new side, and he makes it more robust for us. He gives us a new kind of knowledge, and what Jesus does is he actually invites us into a new reality. And the new reality is called the new kingdom that's now ruled not by the world, but by God. And the whole thing, starts with acknowledging who our enemy is and what our enemy wants to do. Which then gives us the power to do what Jesus invites us to do next. And this is the gut-wrenching part. He invites us to pray for that enemy. Which is the most difficult thing. But this isn't about, this whole text and the whole Jesus story isn't about what we can do on our own. You need to know that Jesus actually invites us to do this. And then Jesus empowers us by his own spirit to see what God the Father is doing and then do that thing ourselves. And when we open our eyes, we see that God the Father actually doesn't have favorites. We don't hold some special favor favor with God that others don't. It may hurt us, but even, yes, God loves our enemies. I mean, this was the story of Israel. They were God's chosen to be a blessing to the other nations, even their enemies. And Jesus never hesitated. His followers, he says, are invited to come in with him on a dangerous journey called discipleship. And praying for our enemies, frankly, is really, really dangerous. And you need to know, it's dangerous for you to pray for your enemies, but guess what else? It's dangerous for them. So let me explain what I mean. A few years ago, um, I said to you that I believe that the first virtue in the kingdom of God is imagination. And followed closely behind imagination, almost like it's imagination's partner, is courage. And this is what Jesus is Jesus' invitation is. It's an invitation to pray for our enemy, and that is what 
that's what pray for your enemy is all about. It's about imagination and it's about courage. And these things are quite dangerous. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, excuse me, in, the, in Jesus' day, the, the Jewish people had many enemies. Uh, they had pagan nations that held them down with harsh rules and taxes. And many could not worship in freedom. They had to hide who, who they really were. And there was this growing distance between the rich and the poor. And they felt like it was injustice. But Jesus offered them a new type of justice that, doesn't, that didn't look like the world go, gone blind. Instead, Jesus offered opportunities so maybe the world could see clearly for the very first time. Because in the kingdom of God, Jesus says, a new type of justice is given to you. This is a justice that Jesus offers that is one of healing and creativity and restoration. It's a restorative justice. It's a type of justice that reveals the love of God for everyone. First for us, and then for our enemy. And this is remarkable, because there is no other God that encourages people to behave in a way like this. As Jesus gives us these three hints about how we go about praying for our enemy. Now these three hints are kind of like cartoon sketches that, that should begin to stir our, our God-given imagination and should like well up the courage, it should cause the courage to rise within us. And these things aren't just like bits of good advice, they're actually invitations. So he says first, if someone strikes you on the right cheek, go ahead and let him hit you on the left cheek as well. So I've got my friend Judah, he's here. Judah, everybody give Judah a hand, he's right up here. Judah, come stand next to me. <laughs> Judah's going to help me work out this cartoon sketch, okay? So here he is, can you see him all? Look, in the back, there you go. So uh, Jesus is not talking about like hand-to-hand combat here or a boxing match or a brawl where two people are, are punching and kicking at each other without any rules. Jesus is in an honor-shame culture. And what he's implying is this, to have somebody slap you on the right cheek is the most devastating form of shame. Judah is one amazing person, tough, handsome. I mean, look at him, right? Smart, great, everything about Judah. He is fabulous. He even has a biblical name. I mean, he is great. If Judah wanted to slap me on my right cheek in Jesus's day, and he did it with his right hand, he would have to hit me. Thank you for being so gentle with the back, with the back of his hand. So to have somebody hit you on the right cheek was the most devastating form of shame. Hitting somebody on the right cheek, which happened a lot. It happened quite often among slaves and servants. It was done with the right hand and therefore almost certainly was done with the back of his hand. If he's going to hit me on the right cheek. Friends, this is not just violence. It's even more miserable. This would be like Judah giving the world's greatest insult. I, if he backhanded me, it's a way by which he's saying to me, you are inferior. You are my slave. Or even worse. 
So what should I do? Jesus says, should I hit Judah back? Because that's the question. That's what I would want to do. But all this hitting just keeps the violence in circulation, wouldn't it? Everybody give Judah a hand. You can go sit back down. But instead, do you know what Jesus introduces his hearers to do? I mean, he introduces them to an idea that's shocking. He said, uh, you know what you should do? You should turn your left cheek towards your enemy. You know what you should do? You should show your whole face to him or to her. Because to turn your left cheek is to say, hit me, fine. Hit me again. Only this time, you better do it with an open hand. Because I am a human. And I am equal to you. And you will not treat me as anything less anymore. You know, this is, this is why this is good news. Because it's like for the first time, Jesus introduces to those at the bottom a brand new way to be human. It's like he's saying to them, you are more than what they say you are. Believe it. Live into it. The way God demonstrates his love for you is by empowering you to demonstrate God's love by not acting out in the way your enemies do. Offering your cheek, offering the other cheek to your enemy is a way to say, hit me if you like, but now as an equal, not as an inferior. It's a public statement. It's a way to become human. As we uh, come into Black History Month, we cannot help but recall the nonviolent movements that Dr. King led. His nonviolent resistance called those who were involved to ask questions to the whole world. Am I not a man, people st said. During the civil rights movement at the Memphis sanitation strike in 1968, I am a man signs were used to answer the same question. Dr. King took the Sermon on the Mount very seriously, which is why he said, let us be practical and ask the question, how do we love our enemies? Well, three ways. We must develop and maintain the capacity to forgive. We must recognize that, evil, that the evil deed of the enemy neighbor is the thing, the thing that hurts, never quite expresses all he is. And we must not seek to defeat or humiliate the enemy, but to win his friendship and understanding. And then he said this, love is the only force capable of transforming an enemy into a friend. It's a way, now, a new way to be human. In November, we celebrated as a congregation the life of Frederick Douglass, a former slave that had influence in Lincoln's White House. Douglass recognized early in his life that education was going to be his way out of slavery. So he taught himself how to read and write. He saw himself as a human. And he did it in the most cunning and creative and courageous and imaginative ways. By creating a game among the other white boys, he bet them that he could read and write better than, than they could, knowing that he could not read and write at all. And knowing that he could not knowing that he could not read or write at all. And of course, no white boy of the 1800s was going to turn down the bet against a slave boy. So he would choose words that he didn't know how to read or write. And he would lose the bet on purpose. 
because in doing so, they showed him how to read and write. They gave him the ability to read and write because those other boys would end up proving they were better by writing the words down right there in the dirt or on the piece of paper. And in the end, they taught him. I love what Bonhoeffer says. He says, the only way to overcome evil is to let it, is to let it run itself to a standstill because it cannot find the resistance it's looking for. This is what Jesus is telling us when he says, turn the other cheek, be creative, be courageous, see your own humanity and let the world see it as well. Secondly, Jesus says, suppose you're getting sued and the man who's suing you wants your coat. Well, you should give him your cloak as well. In other words, if you, if you can't win, you know what you need to do? You need to go overboard and shame him with your impro- impoverished nakedness. And the world will judge him due to his harsh behavior. And then you'll find your humanity. I heard a story of a friend of mine recently who did this thing. He's a business owner here in the city, and he's always led with integrity and character. And I'm always amazed how his mind works, not just in the way, he, in, the way in which he conducts business, but how he deals with people. As his company was involved in a project, another company who wanted the upper hand got these high-powered la- lawyers to make their arguments for him. The stakes were super high and the threats were real. There was a lot of money and power and even reputations were on the line. And in this setting, both sides were invited to a podium with a microphone to make their case. And the lawyer was angry and enraged and spoke with hostility and intimidation and and in anger tried to make, make my friend and his company look bad. And nobody was willing to cross him. But my friend walked to the podium and began calmly to present his side. And as he was talking in the middle of the argument, the lawyer jumped up, jerked the microphone away from his mouth, and shouted at him in an intimidating fashion. But my friend was not to be intimidated, and he was not going to play his game. Well, after the lawyer was done with his tongue lashing, and with him still standing there, and the crowd holding their breath, my friend calmly moved the microphone back to where it was so he could be heard, and he said, as I was saying, and in that moment showed the whole place what a a fool the lawyer was because he handled the situation with dignity. The lawyer ended up making himself look like a horse's patoot. It's kid Sunday. Instead of Instead of responding in like, or like what happens on daytime talk shows or courtroom dramas or in sitcoms, the lawyer was given space to trip himself up. My friend did not dehumanize him, but he respected his humanity by holding on to his own. This is what Jesus is calling us to imagine if we're in court with somebody who wants to get us. Finally, Jesus' final sketch has to do with, uh, with the constant Roman military occupation that Israel faced. He said, let's suppose a Roman soldier forces you to carry his pack, which was perfectly legal for Roman soldiers to do. They had every right to do this. They could go to anybody and say, you can carry my pack. 
I want you to carry my pack. But it was illegal for them to be overly harsh, and they were only allowed to make somebody carry a pack one mile. So carrying a pack a second mile would have, just, would have been just that. It would have been overly harsh. And the Roman law was quite strict, and everyone knew it. So Jesus says, if somebody asks you, if a Roman soldier asks you to carry their pack for a mile, do it. And then carry it a second mile. Turn the tables on him. Astonish and perhaps alarm him because there is trouble if his commander ever finds out. And by copying your father in heaven with imagination and courage, you won't have to plot revenge. Instead, you will be demonstrating to everyone there is a new way to be human. I want to show you a picture. This picture is known as Tank Man. It's also known as the unknown protester or the unknown rebel. Some of you are too, re- too young to remember this. But it's a picture of an unidentified Chinese man who stood in front of a column of tanks that were leaving Tiananmen Square on June the 5th of 1989, the morning after the Chinese military had suppressed uh, the Tian- uh, Tiananmen Square protesters by force. So the story goes like this. Chinese students and workers were calling for democratic reforms. There in Beijing, and up to a million, a million protesters gathered. They're right in the middle of the city. And on one day, the army opened fire, and it's not known how many thousands of protesters were killed. And as the lead tank maneuvered past this man, the world caught a vision This man repeatedly shifted himself in a position in order to obstruct the tank's attempt to get around him. The the, the incident was filmed, and then it was smuggled out to a worldwide audience. And internationally, it's considered one of the most iconic images of all time. And inside China, the images and the events leading up to the subject are under heavy state censorship, meaning you can't talk about it. You know what this man did not do? He couldn't, even if he wanted to. He did not respond in violence. Instead, he stood with his humanity on display. And violence and misuse of power was revealed for what it, for what it is. Jesus gives us these, these three examples. These are just little sketches. They're examples of how imagination works in the kingdom of God. Now, some might say that is absolutely impossible. And on the one hand, it's true. It's impossible to love our enemies and pray for our enemies. On one hand, that is absolutely true. But on the other hand, it's not. Because this is not good advice. It's good news. And it's good news because Jesus did all this himself. And he opened up for us a whole new way of being human so that all who follow him can discover, can discover this way. I think N.T. Wright says it best when he says this. When they mocked him, he didn't respond. When they challenged him, he told quizzical, sometimes humorous stories that forced everybody to think differently. When they struck him, he took the pain. When they, when they put the worst bit of, a Roman, of Roman equipment on his back, it, it was a heavy cross piece on which he would be killed. He carried it out of the city to the place of his own execution. And when the world nailed him to the cross, he prayed for them 
This is a story that we remember when we come to the table of our Lord. It is, when we come to this table, it is an invitation. But it is not just an invitation, it's actually an empowerment to live in the Jesus way. And here Jesus asks nothing of his followers that he has not done himself. He has lived into the new kingdom with imagination and courage. And he says, it is for you too. You know, the Sermon on the Mount is not just a sermon on how to behave. It's actually a sermon on how to live into something new by discovering the living God and the loving and the dying Jesus and learning to reflect that love ourselves. And that is what we remember whenever we come to this table. We remember that on the night that he was betrayed by those he came to save, he took the bread and he held it up. And then he broke it. And then he said, this is my body which is broken for you. He did this for the ones who betrayed him, those he came to save. Every time you eat it, I want you to remember me. And then after supper, he held up the cup and he said, this cup represents the new covenant, the new way, and it comes in my blood. And whenever you drink of it, I want you to remember me. Here at our church, we practice an open table because the way of Jesus is open to all. He wants to give his grace to all. We could call this a trust table because by coming to this table, we open ourselves up and trust that this saving work of God in Christ is actually for us. His was a demonstration. It is an invitation and it is an empowerment. This is not a Nazarene table, it's Jesus' table. And all who are open to the work of God in Christ are welcome to this table. And so we want no barriers, so our bread is gluten-free, our wine is non-alcoholic. But in just a moment, I'm going to invite you to the front where you'll come to one of these servers. I invite you to take the bread as they give it to you, and then dip the bread into the cup, and I invite you to eat it. Here at our church, we don't take communion. We receive it because it is a gift. So I invite you to come with your hands cupped, ready to receive that gift. Allow these, my friends, to serve you. It is a demonstration, a reminder that Jesus serves you. You who were once his enemy and now who are his friends. You who he prays for. You who he loves and longs for and invites you into his way. If for any reason you cannot come down our aisle, wave at Justin. He'd love to come and bring the elements to you. But friends, this is the story we remember. And it is not just an act. It is not just a practice. It is actually a way by which we participate in the grace of God who invites us to have imagination, who invites us to have courage, who invites us to name our enemy, to acknowledge it, and then in a creative way, pray for our enemy so that their humanity might be new and so might ours be. So friends, when you are ready to come to this table, I welcome you now.